Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Hi, I'm Matt Kibbe, the eponymous host of Kibbe on Liberty, and I want to give you some heads up about this episode you're about to see. This is a special conversation that I just had with Senator Rand Paul about his new book, Hot Off the Presses, Deception, The Great COVID Cover-Up. And this book is something that all of us need to read and understand in some ways, it's a Michael Crichton novel or a Dan Brown novel, a whodunit with with bad guys constantly being un- uncovered and, and being discovered for their deceptions. But it's also basically what happened. And the reason we need to understand this mad science experiment that our government officials finance and then covered up is that they're going to do it again if we don't call them out. They're going to do it again if we don't hold them accountable. Um, the, the episode you're about to see is, uh, is not perfect sound or, or visual quality because it was a live stream. But the conversation is so important, I wanted to share it with you. And if you want to get a signed copy from Rand Paul himself of this book, you can see the link at the bottom of the screen here. It's also going to be in the description. Uh, order a copy. I highly recommend it. Check it out. Welcome, everybody. My name is Matt Kibbe, and I have the honor of talking to Senator Rand Paul about his brand-new book, Deception, the Great COVID Cover-Up. You guys may recognize this shady-looking character on the cover. We got the one picture where you didn't have three masks on. Yeah. I think it would have been better if we had the three masks, you know, in the goggles and the earmuffs to protect himself. I think it sort of represents who he is. I hope there is eventually a double-blind study about the double masking that he was telling yeah, us well, to I do. And it only works if it has, like, a Washington Nationals emblem on there or three of the people. Yeah. Know, it has to have some kind of symbol or sign on there to work, you know, to fend off evil. Um, to me, it's sort of amazing. And I've, I've actually thought about working on this project of looking back at all the things they did in medieval times, you know, the weird faces and noses, smelling salts and garlic and all that. Really, a lot of the things they advised during this pandemic were not a lot different than the Middle Ages and about as effective. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, symbolic rituals and virtue signaling and and pretending to be safe, um, which actually made us less safe. And even some of the things that we did during this pandemic, people like George Washington knew better. So in George Washington's day, they believed in vaccination. They did a smallpox vaccine. He had his wife. He sends his wife. We talk a little bit about this in the book. He sends his wife to the camp. You know, She's going to come visit him at the military camps. And he says, you can't come unless you're vaccinated against smallpox. But the question is, did George take the vaccine? No, because he had smallpox scars on his face. He'd gotten the Barbados when he was 15, so he didn't take it because they understood immunity. So it was lots of black backsliding, uh, yeah. just a little bit. Okay, let me explain what we're going to do tonight. This is a virtual, live, actual book signing. We've had a number of people um, purchase a copy of your book, and you're going to be signing them. I'm going to strong arm you to sign my my book. Absolutely. Um, and uh, we're going to have a conversation about the book, but... Most importantly, um, people that are getting their books signed virtually are asking us questions online as well. So this is your chance to finally stump Rand Paul, who, um, by as best I can tell, knows more about this subject than certainly any other member of Congress. I guess that's a that's not a high bar, but yeah, you know, I've been intrigued by it as a physician. I have a little background in science, but it just has intrigued me, and it's also one of the things where. 
I didn't start out with a full-blown conclusion or perception of this. I really, for the first year or so, wasn't even that interested in, did it come from animals? Did it come from a lab? I assumed it probably came from animals because that's the way most of these had the previous coronavirus from 2003 to 2004 came from animals. I figured that's probably what happened. But I became intrigued over time as, as actually some authors started to look into this. And as we started to see the timeline of the private conversations that all came out. So that was actually my first question. Who Do you remember the moment or someone that you, you were talking to where you said something is fundamentally wrong here? This is not just a pandemic. This is something much bigger. You know, when I first saw what was going on, I immediately resisted as an individualist and a libertarian all the stuff that were telling me what to do and questioned the science of wearing masks, shutting schools down, all that. From the very beginning, I questioned that. But on the origins of the virus, whether it came from a lab or not, uh, I do remember reading uh, Nicholas Wade's And he had been, I think, a New York, uh, New York Times science writer. He's, uh, you know, written books. He's, he's, he understands the science and can explain it in a real way. And he wrote something on medium.com. And I didn't know much about that, but I think it's a self-publishing. And then the story was told that most of the major outlets wouldn't take it. He's an esteemed writer, a good writer, and he explained science in such a way that the ordinary person could could understand it. And what he explained was that a virus can actually be mutated, pushed through natural selection, evolution, in a petri dish, and it actually turns out when you look at it, you cannot see that the sciences have the scientists have manipulated. It's it's forced evolution. It's just passing it over and over again. And basically what they do is they take an animal like a mouse and they put human lungs in it. Now, that's another story in and of itself, but they humanize the lungs. It, this, this, the immune system thinks it's seeing a human lung instead of a mouse lung. Cell markers are human, and this is done genetically through manipulation. But then what they do is run the virus through there. The first time the virus says, well, those are humans. I don't, it doesn't work very well. They do it again and again until they get lucky. And the virus mutates, and it infects one of these humanized mice. But then they let it grow, they take it out again, and then they do it again. It's called serial passage. You keep infecting the mice, but what you get is forcing evolution. What might happen in nature to go from animals to human is now being done by humans, forcing an animal virus to become a human virus. And it has sort of scary implications. Yeah. Because what ended up happening, and then there's another good book called Viral, and in that, Alina Chan and Matt Ridley write about this, and they say that basically the virus uh, appeared to be pre-adapted for humans, just ready to take off. And so when I read Nicholas Wade's article, I became fascinated by this and sort of got into it because it truly is a mystery with all of these clues. None of them are 100% certain. They're circumstantial, but so many clues, one after another. But then the real hook for me was that I was, as I was learning uh, of the facts of that this virus had been manipulated, was that all of a sudden, every all of the people that doubted this were being called crazy, uh-huh. conspiracy theorists, loony, by scientists, by Anthony Fauci, and by all his cronies. But then we discover, about a year into the, the, the research that was, uh, was going on with this, we discover all these people were privately saying the opposite. In fact, even using the same words, this is not a fringe theory. Christian Anderson, one of the main scientists who writes the paper to say, oh, this is crazy. All the people saying it's crazy publicly or in private saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, pretty sure this guy 
looks manipulated here to me, and we know they're doing gain-of-function research in Wuhan. All the stuff that they're publicly denying to me, to me it's the one cover-up from government that's so thoroughly debunked by its own people, by yeah. the people actually telling the truth when we look at their private emails. Well, I actually had uh, Matt Ridley on my show when that book came out about the origins of COVID. And, and my take at the time, we, we've all had to become sort of amateur epidemiologists in this process because we've discovered that the official science community and government was, was lying to us every step of the way. But to me, the cover-up itself said that they were probably guilty of something horrific because it was so over the top. And this was before the Twitter files and before a lot of these FOIA requests. Um, I guess the, the question at this point, and by the way, you've you document the, those revelations in a way that, that, is, that is the most thorough and concise in this book. Like I've, I've, I've read everything on COVID and that this is a beautiful, um, for someone that wants to know what's happening so that it doesn't happen again, this, this is the book to read. Yeah. And to me, I think that so much of like for a, over a year, Facebook downgraded and tried to prevent the spreading of any discussion of whether this came from a lab. And then in the end, Zuckerberg and others are like, oh yeah, we made a mistake. It's like, really? That's all we're going to hear from you? Not even really a thorough apology or not that we're never going to do this again or we apologize for cooperating with the government? No. For a year, they suppressed something that in all likelihood is the truth. And then like, oh, well, whoops, you know, we, we, you know, you know, we made a mistake. And it's like, I don't think the public has really woken up to the fact of how much our government is involved with manipulating, massaging, and distributing a version of the truth that is consistent with protecting their ass. Basically. Yeah, yeah. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. Yeah, that's the that's when I realized that I still don't think we understand everything in this in this cover up. I I think I don't you, you sort of argue that that Fauci is the ringmaster of this, but but I want to know who Fauci's boss is. And yeah. that maybe that's part two and of the book. That's a good question because for most of the writing of this book. And for most of the facts in the book, it appears to be Anthony Fauci at the top of the food chain. However, one of the things that we learned as we were finishing writing the book is that Fauci was making trips to the CIA. And the reason this is important is that each of our intelligence agencies voted on whether or not they thought the virus came from the lab. FBI concluded with moderate confidence it came from the Wuhan lab. Department of Energy, I think with low confidence, came from the lab. A lot of the other intelligence agencies were indifferent, but we've now learned that the CIA initially voted and said, yeah, it came from the lab. We think six to one, it comes to the lab. A week later, all of a sudden the vote reverses. And so my question is, is Anthony Fauci going to the CIA that convinces the CIA, or is it possibly the CIA that convinces Anthony Fauci? And the reason why I think it could be coming from the CIA is, is that the CIA has the, the ability to influence their analysts. We also have evidence that one of the inspector generals overseeing the CIA reprimanded analysts over the last year or so because they were suppressing analysis 
that supported the lab lake theory. And the reason they were doing this, and this is a real thing, it's Trump derangement syndrome because Trump said something about maybe this came from Wuhan, the China virus, the Wuhan virus. They immediately dispelled it and decided any facts that supported him because we don't like Trump, we're going to suppress that, that information. And I think that's what happened. But there's more to find out. There are also private players in this that are huge financial BMS that finance the WHO and put lots of money into this that have a self-interest in, in their relations with China. And that it may be that they think relations with China is actually more important than actually knowing the truth. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to a couple of questions that I wanna I wanna continue along those lines. But I just wanna point out to everybody, if you haven't done it yet, this is a great place to buy your signed copy. Uh, Rand is signing these books tonight, and you have to school up on this. And that's that's sort of my next question: Why do we need to know what happened? I assume that's why you wrote the book. You want people to know what happened. Yeah, it's not just about culpability. Everywhere I go, people say, when's Fauci going to be in jail? Back when I go home, you know, my wife's first question, when I get in, in the door, how come he's not in jail? But it's more than just culpability. Um, it's about trying to prevent this from happening again. In the book, we quote uh, a virologist who's been a high-ranking person in government who believes this will happen again, and that the next time it could be between 5 and 50% of the public dies. They are working on viruses like Ebola. So Ebola is transmitted through bodily fluids. It's fairly contagious, but you can't breathe. You can't sit in the same room. You know, if you touch someone's skin or they're bleeding or whatever, you can get a problem. But it's not read through the air. Who in their right mind would think it would be a good idea to take Ebola in lab and try to decide if it's if we can aerosolize it? The whole debate began about 2009, 2010, when a scientist uh, named Ron Fouchier took the avian flu, which has like between 30 and 50% mortality and figured out how to aerosolize it and spread it to mammals. And people became very concerned. Why would we be doing that kind of stuff? And that's really the goal of this is not just culpability, but legislation that at least prevents the taxpayer from supporting research that's uh, too So this reminds me, and, and then, then I'm going to ask a, a question from, from some of the folks, but... Uh... It reminds me of, of scientism and this sort of elitist, arrogant attitude that if you just give scientists enough power, they, they could they could manipulate and reorganize society. And that that's the basis of socialism. But this this stuff is even more crazy than that. And I do think like like Fauci has talked about bending modernity, a direct quote from him in one of one of these journal articles he wrote in, in Cell, which is a, a academic journal. Um, that's what they're doing, but the but the arrogance and the fatal conceit of this could get us all killed. Well, he also talked about, in 2012, he wrote that even if a pandemic were to occur because of gain-of-function research, it would be worth the knowledge. And there's a lot of scientists now questioning if the knowledge is really worth the danger, and really if the knowledge is really that important. It's sort of like some kid in eighth grade say, wow, what if I create a virus to kill all the teachers or something? It's like, well, yeah, that would be science, but that would not be good. It wouldn't be, there wouldn't be any real reason to do that. And that's sort of what people are thinking now, that the gain-of-function research, creating viruses, taking two viruses, mixing them together, and making them either more transmissible or more lethal, that there really isn't a great deal of knowledge on it today. And by the way, it's, it's not as if um, the CIA and other alphabet agencies haven't done these mad science experiments on people before um, MKUltra, Tuskegee, everybody knows about that, but but 
but they've done this. And this is the tip of the iceberg. We've tried to go through as much as we can get. We're having trouble getting even non-classified records, but as we are scratching the surface, we believe that we are going to find in the underbelly of government, we are going to find classified research that they're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure they never reveal to us. We have one conversation from scientists who are saying, we need to make sure we're not too critical of the military people in China being involved because once people begin to look, they're going to find out that our military is involved as well. They didn't want to look too hard at China. China has all these generals and colonels involved because they thought once they begin to look, people are going to discover our military is involved in this too. Fully believe that, but don't quite have the evidence because my own government is trying to prevent me from knowing. Yeah, the question is, will they ever give you the evidence? So, Michael from St. Peter's, are you aware of any measures that can be put in place to ensure that a government bureaucrat such as Dr. Fauci doesn't acquire power again during a crisis to institute disastrous public policy? Yeah, and I've introduced it. What we would do is take Dr. Fauci's position and divide it into three. So it'd be three different people. So there'd be a third as much power. But then we have term limits. I think it's two five-year terms. And we make it confirmable by the Senate. Right now, the Senate doesn't vote on Fauci's position. And it's one person who could do it for 45 years. The closest analogy to the abuse of power, and it probably pales in comparison, would be J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover did a lot of bad things over 40 years and accumulated a lot. He used to be the poster child. Yeah. And now it's a, you know, in fact, I wrote an op-ed comparing Hoover to uh, to Fauci. And, you know, can you believe the Washington Post wouldn't? But, uh, yeah, shock, uh, shocking. But, yeah, dividing the position up is one thing to do. And I've introduced it, and unfortunately, I know Democrat votes and very few Republican votes. The other thing to remember is the institute that Fauci is in charge of, the NIH is this big billions of dollars. His institute is 127th of the NIH, but his institute grow, grew to have a budget almost as large or larger than the rest. After 9-11, this is something Robert F. Kennedy is pretty good at pointing out, is that after 9-11, people began saying, oh, people are going to use biological warfare against us, so we need to either try to prevent it or develop it ourselves. So billions started funding lend to this, and then Fauci became a regular visitor you know, a lot of these people are, are now regular visitors and part of the intelligence community. In fact, some of them in England that we point out in the book are MI6. Yeah. You know, it's bizarre. You're supposed to be a scientist. You're giving out grants for science, but you're, you used to be the head of MI6. Yeah. Crazy. That that gets to Michael's question, because I think one of the things we, we, we all were saying, how do these public health officials from these, these nameless agencies have all this power? But it turns out that it's it's really a national security thing, and that's a whole new level of, of power and control. Their power grew after, after 9-11, and there's a lot of national defense stuff going on in this. And then there's a huge amount of money. I mean, like let's say that it's a noble thing to protect our soldiers against anthrax and we need a vaccine. Vaccine, I think, goes bad in about a year or two, and then we do it again, just to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. And I'm not making a conclusion on whether we need that or not. Maybe we do. But... At the same time, there are billions of dollars changing hands in this, and there needs to be oversight. So one of our goals for oversight of this is that the people funding the agencies should not be the people receiving the money. So the people overseeing the, the these potential- It's such a radical idea. Yeah. yeah. The, people, the people overseeing this are the people receiving the money. Yeah. The people making decisions around Fauci, all the leading gain-of-function researchers in the world are making mm-hmm. the decision on this. So it's corrupt, and uh, 
it really needs an independent sort of agency, almost like a nuclear regulatory agency, something outside of government. It's going to have to be appointed somehow by government, but scientists, national security people, but also I want on every committee a citizen, taxpayer representative. I mean, all these committees need to have uh, people other than just the people self-interested. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Yeah. So, so Margaret from Fort Myers, would you say China has reg- regrettably won the media and diplomatic battle over COVID-19? Beijing has bullied many other nations out of investigating the origins of the pandemic, and it and has destroyed records and thwarted the World Health Organization probe. If you were to have asked me in May of 2020, I would have said, yes, they won. They deterred everybody, and Fauci was the tip of the spear over here protecting scrutiny and oversight. But this was a, a slow motion unraveling of this. You know, Nicholas Wade wrote that article. Nicholson Baker wrote an article for New York Magazine. Alina Chan, Matt Ridley. All of a sudden, and it, it gradually grew and grew, and more people became aware of it until all of a sudden, you know, you might get a, a, a mainstream uh publication actually acknowledging these theories. And now, and then you finally get Facebook saying, well, sorry, it may have happened. And and then you get Fauci saying, oh, I said all along, we should look at both there. You know, I was never out of and I never tried to skew people one way or the other. So you get all of them lying. They're yeah. all lying yeah. now. But the lying is the acknowledgement that the pressure has built. So I don't think they have won the battle. I think China's getting away scot-free. I think everybody in the world believes China had something to do with this, basically. Um, and there's a whole other thing in there. We go through this in the book that a lot of the research dollars that are from the NIH wound up in the hands of military researchers. The guy that develops their vaccine, and we go through this in the book, the guy that develops the Chinese vaccine within one month, really within like two or three weeks of public knowing about this, he's got a vaccine, which is everybody thinks impossible to develop it that, that quickly. He dies two months later, but his name is General Zhou Yusuf. So it's a general in the military. And then he mysteriously dies two weeks later, two months later. But a lot of the military money, it went from the NIH to our universities. Some of it went to UC Berkeley, UC Davis, Galveston, all these different universities get it. And they subcontract it to military research. There's a group called the Academy of Military Medical Sciences. And people aren't called doctor in that academy. They're called general and colonel. They are active members of the military. They're scientists also. Yeah. But they're in all likelihood working one of the, uh, there, there's two, I think the two most outrageous things about Fauci's behavior, and you document both of these things in the book, one was diverting attention away from possible gain of function, which which fundamentally changed the public health response, and people died because he lied. The other thing that I can't get my hands around is the fact that, that there was plenty of concern about gain of function to the point where the Obama administration said, we shouldn't do this anymore. And um, going to Wuhan was basically a very dangerous end run around that. So we went to the enemy. Presumably, China would be on the list of countries that we shouldn't trust and did this very dangerous research of the shoddy lab in enemy territory, basically giving it over to enemy hands. 
Yeah, and this is one of the things that from the very beginning what intrigued me was an email exchange on January 31st. Starts about 10 o'clock at night and it goes all night to the middle of the night. Fauci's last email is at 3 in the morning. What do you think of when you think of this guy that's been around forever emailing somebody at 3 in the morning? You think he's frightened. Something, something's keeping him away because he's worried he's going to get his hand his hands cookie joint. So the last email. It's like a Michael Creighton novel. Exactly. Yeah. Well, then I goes to somebody I'd never heard of, and I knew the name because it, it's part of the FOIA request. But I didn't know the person. About a year later, I meet the person. His name's Bob Catback. He's a scientist, and he's part, been part of some of the investigation of this. He worked for the Senate committee, and he came to the conclusion he thinks it came from the lab also. But it's the last email by Fauci on January 31st, 2020, and it's at 3 in the morning, and Fauci's sort of sending him an article that implies that this, in all likelihood, came from nature, nothing to see here. And I thought, well, I guess he was in government. I don't know what he was doing. And I discover that this Bob Cadillac that's getting the 3 a.m. email was in charge of the safety committee that's supposed to be overseeing gain-of-function research. And so when I meet him a couple years later, he says, yeah, I was overseeing it, but only ever saw three projects. And I think we banned one or two out of three, but I never saw the research out of work. And so how could that have happened? He said it got diverted. They didn't send it to us. I didn't have the power to go looking for it which is a fault of the committee. They set the committee up with no power. But how did they go around the committee? It had to be Anthony Fauci's approval to go around the committee because when I asked Fauci and committee, were you doing this gain-of-function research? He says, my experts, dozens of them, have told me up and down it's not gain-of-function. And so we asked the NIH, send us the paperwork. It had to be a discussion, right? Don't you write anything down? Where's the discussion saying this wasn't gain-of-function? We think if that exists, they're trying to hide it from us. And so we've tried very hard. It is one of the smoking guns that gets his culpability. But the fact that he's at 3 a.m. emailing Bob Cadillac means that he's trying to, he's, he's begun the cover-up. The cover-up began on one day, January 31st, 2020. And talk about fast. Within three or four days, they're all saying it's gain of function, it's manipulated. And all of a sudden, publicly, they're all saying the opposite, the exact opposite. They're saying, looks like came from nature. This is not a laboratory construct. They're making conclusions that sound like what a politician would do. Now, scientists usually say, that's not probable or probably could be this or that. The evidence points to this and that. Scientists don't speak the way politicians do normally. They wrote a statement that sounds like it was written by a politician. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing they were made an offer they couldn't refuse. But And as this gets to like this, this, this blurring between... Um, scientific research and public health on the one hand, and 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 who controls that? There's been a centralization where government really doles out a lot of the cash, and even if they're not doling out the cash, the imprimatur of, of Fauci's approval, NIH approval, probably dictates where the private money goes. So we have we have a very centralized science system, which which in and of itself is kind of anti-science. Well, you think about it, science is really a field of, of disputation. Einstein said, I'm always one experiment away from being disproven. And I realize that I have to keep backing up what I say. And I have to hope the experiments come by, support me, because I'm one way. And if you've ever been to a scientific convention, they're always going back and forth saying, we didn't like your study size. We didn't like the grouping wasn't good, your control group. This disputation goes on all the time. Whenever someone talks about scientific consensus, consensus only happens when you centralize the funding of science. So really the precursor to what we've gotten here with the misinformation and the unification 
of one government think on this was climate change. All of the climate research in the whole world is funded by government. All the conclusions are pre-decided. There is no objective climate science. I know that sounds like a lot, but I don't believe there's any objective climate science funded by government because if you are a skeptic or have a real question, you want to know, is this true? You will not be published. But it's the same with COVID think. So with COVID think, there was only one truth. And the one truth is take the vaccine, shut shut up and, and take the vaccine. And they were unwilling and really, once you challenge them, unwilling and unable to answer the questions or the challenge. So Greg from Florida, do you think COVID is going to continue to be used as a political weapon that both sides use? You know, I think uh, they continue to try, but it's lost its potency both literally and figuratively because, um, frankly, people say, oh, gosh, I'm so glad I had six vaccines and didn't die from my latest bout with COVID. But I think people are smarter than that, and they're starting to know that basically the disease itself has become less potent. And this is not always true, but it is often true that viruses that last for a while and humanity survives become less potent over time and sometimes more contagious. So like with Omicron, it became so contagious that everybody, the whole world was inoculated, but fortunately it was less potent. Now, some there's a couple of arguments. You can say less people died because they already had a vaccine, maybe, and some of it already had the first, the wild type variant, like I had at the very beginning. So that made it less potent. But also, I think the virus is less potent now. And so I don't know if it can still be a weapon. I don't know. I, I'm going to the airport now. I go to the airport twice a week. And it, for the last year, it's probably been 5% of the people with masks. It's 10 or 15 people, 15% of the people with masks again. And it's completely irrational. One, because the disease is and COVID's not dangerous anymore. You've either had it or been vaccinated or both. And frankly, the masks don't work. Yeah. So you're not going to die from it. And the masks don't work. And yet you have people, you know, have been called into this, you know, have been just sort of, and I guess it was that way in Asia, you know, people have been wearing masks and someone just never gave up on wearing masks. It's to me sort of a sad sort of statement. And I can't imagine, you know, growing up as a kid in Texas wearing a mask outside, you know, playing ball in a mask. And it's ridiculous. I'm guessing your dad would not have signed uh, off on that. Yeah. No masks in the Paul household. I can tell you that. Uh, that's actually sort of proudly the only video that's ever been banned by YouTube by Free the People was a conversation I had with your dad. I, I want to say maybe even late 2020, but if not 21, where he's explaining why masks don't work as as, as an actual doctor who right. wears masks. And they that was back when they wouldn't allow us to say such things. So he got banned. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Key Beyond Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. And uh, here's the thing is, is it actually gets people to act. I'm trying to think of the words I saw somebody use the other day. Sort of been a rec it encourages reckless behavior. Yeah. So, for example, if you think masks work and you're 80 years old and your spouse is 80 year old and you're taking food into them and you think wearing a cut up piece of your T-shirt is protecting you from getting COVID from your spouse, 
it doesn't and doesn't work. So it's leading you to do dangerous activity. Whereas in a short-term limited fashion, probably an N95 mask, you might wear gloves and you might spend a short period of time with your loved one, take them to food and then see if they need anything and then leave. Uh, and then take your mask off and throw it away probably would have some value. But in general, public, they don't work just because air goes around them, people touch them. And apparently, even the N95s, I didn't realize this till I started looking into it, they have an electrostatic charge that as you breathe and you exhale, the moisture in your air actually gets rid of the electrostatic charge and they aren't as good at filtering at all after a few hours of wearing. And so you see these poor people putting their kids in and their kids have lines and moths on their face. And it's just, it's sort of child abuse. It's not really any kind of science and does help the kid. Which sort of begs uh, the question. So we have, we have this cover up. We have a lot of these public health officials, starting with Fauci, panicked about, about people finding out where this thing actually came from, simultaneously demanding these draconian lockdowns, which all of public health before that said that that would be counterproductive. You destroy the economy and and people need to, to work and eat in order to be healthy. And then then Fauci flip-flopping on masks. Why were they pushing these things? Was it was it about submission? I think it's always been about submission. And uh, this way it gives them the power to be able to tell you the next thing to do. Um, I don't quite get it, but they seem to uniformly be in it. But here's the interesting thing, talk about consensus. Before 2020, before this pandemic, Virtually all the science and all the studies had, had been that masks don't work in the general public. They'd studied influenza, which is a slightly bigger virus, but it's still small enough that it goes through masks. And they just discovered that basically the masks don't work, you know, for influenza and all likelihood they don't. And really, they do all these pandemic preparations. You know, government says all these things. What are we going to do when the pandemic gets? Should we pass out masks? They all said, no, they don't work. That had always been the conclusion. But I think in the first nine months when there wasn't a vaccine, what do people in government want to do? They want to do something. Let's do something as an outward show. And there were actually people acknowledging, even when it didn't work, you're showing concern for your fellow man by wearing one, whether it works or not, wear the damn mask. Yeah. It's like, really? That doesn't sound like science to me. In fact, there was an article we quoted in the book from the New England Journal of Medicine where the authors acknowledge they don't work. They say it's a totem. It's sort of an expression of your of your concern, and that would be its only value for society as a, as a totem, but not as an actual blocking of virus. I'm sort of torn about this because I I see someone in a mask, and I've seen an uptick, um, particularly at airports, and it is probably ten or fifteen percent of people now, and and I sort of resent them because I think they want to go petition the government to force me to do it. Because I would have been live and let live. You make your decision, I'll make mine. But I and I but now I'm starting to just feel bad for them because I think they've been sold this this artificial hypochondria where they, they think they're doing something useful, but they're not. You're worried that that person up there wearing the mask is actually a carrier. Yeah. And it did bring out the worst in people and you saw it on, on the internet. Women are just screaming and yelling and yelling profanities at like two 12 year old boys grappling with a football on the field outside, police tape on the jungle, yeah. and the paddle borders, all the crazy stuff they did. And you, you just wonder are these people still out there? And that's who they're going to be. I can remember on the plane, the flight attendant's going up, sir, you're eating your peanuts too slow. You have to put your mask on in between each peanut. Because, mm -hmm. see, I'd calculated it was about 100 peanuts. I ate one about every minute. I was fine for the whole yeah. flight. 
That's how I gained 10 pounds during the pandemic. I was eating all the junk food. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just ridiculous. It, really? It's not going to spread while I'm eating? And really, you think you're yeah. saving everybody's lives by having me put the mask back on? You know, it was all just a, a, a really bad joke, but it led to really, I think, some of the worst abuses. I mean, in our, in our state, our governor uh, went to churches and said, you know, I'm taking down my license plates of people who attend church. I mean, uh, gyms, restaurants, hotels, all of these things were shut down arbitrarily. This is a good segue to Diane's question from South Carolina. What can we sit as citizens do to prevent something like this from ever happening again? You can't, well, we could regulate gain of function research. The taxpayers shouldn't be funding it and we should be very strict on what we allow to happen. That'd be one thing. But as far as the violation of your civil liberties, get rid of those people who would do that to you. And uh, this is a fascinating thing. And there has to become a dichotomy between the parties and not the political parties perfect. But if you look at uh, Democrats, the polls are like 70% believe that, you know, putting somebody in jail for not getting a vaccine is a reasonable thing to do. And it's the opposite. Republicans tend to be less so. All libertarians, it might be zero. Hopefully. Hopefully. We're going to throw them out. Real libertarians, it would be zero. Yeah. But, I mean, this is a, a, you know, it it is a a quandary. And they get really mad because I always like telling them, you know, whatever happened to my body, my choice, you Mm -hmm. know, except for vaccines. Um, the the shocking shift, like that that data point that that people and they they were completely comfortable uh, putting people in camps. Um, and I, I never thought I would see any so called liberal democracy. Like that should be anathema to everyone. Everyone should say that we we don't do that. But they they were pretty comfortable. And see, the bottom line is, and see, I get this even from some libertarians who would say to me, well. What if it were deadly? What if it were smallpox and 30% mortality, which is about the mortality of smallpox? And I said, well, I'd still be against the mandate because I, I think people aren't that stupid. And we'd select against the stupid people. And the stupid people that don't wouldn't worry about smallpox would die from smallpox. And the smart people, George Washington, his wife, people got vaccinated. But there wasn't. And back then, we're talking about a real risk, a big risk. Right now, the risk of your kid getting myocarditis is real, but it's about two to three, maybe four or five out of 15,000. The risk of dying from the smallpox vaccine in George Washington's day was about one in 50 of dying from because they basically took the scab off of somebody who was healing up from smallpox, took some pus, and jabbed that pus into your arm. It was a live vaccine. The hope was it wasn't that strong because you got it in a person who didn't die yeah. and their immune, had, their immune system had started to attack it. So it was Maybe the body had attenuated the virus, but people were, people chose to do it. And then they eventually discovered, and it's, you know, that people think that people like me are against vaccines. I think vaccines are some of the most remarkable things that's ever occurred in science. First, the learning of the smallpox vaccine by actually taking it from someone and giving it to someone. But then the, how we got the modern smallpox vaccine is they noticed that the women who milk the cows never got smallpox. But then they noticed they had cowpox. They had these scars on their hands from cowpox that they got from the udder of the milk of the, of the cow. And that there was a cross-reaction. And they discovered that the cowpox was a relative smallpox. And they said, wonder if we give everybody cowpox, which isn't death weight, then we give them immunity. And then the modern smallpox, and we did that for 150 years. I still had it. But you get smallpox. Yeah. In your yeah. And we look pretty old. Yeah. But... Uh, it's actually past my bedtime, I'll be honest. Yeah, I got another 20 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So like, um, in, in that, that entire story, um, maybe we should all start milking cows again, because it sounds like we had science better back then than we do now. And by the way, that's, that's, that's local knowledge. That's decentralized discovery. That's everything we supposedly believe. And then you, then you centralize everything in, in some government agency with all these perverse incentives and financial interests and, and you, you create a monster. Yeah, I think it was Martin Koldorf who said that we knew about um, immunity. We knew about natural immunity since the time of the plague in Athens in 400 BC. And then we forgot about it three years ago, but we're starting to learn again that natural immunity actually does work. One of the most fascinating stories I remember reading was, um, you know, the 1918 flu is the Spanish flu, probably the most deadly flu in modern history. Maybe 50 million people died, million, a lot of people died. But there were some people still living in like 2018, 2019, over 100 years ago, like newborns in 1918. They tested their blood. They still had antibodies to the to the Spanish flu. Now, it doesn't mean perfect protection, but it means they probably had some pre-existing knowledge and probably would have done better. And plus, we never we may have had the Spanish flu, but whatever it was evolved enough and people had the immunity that they were survived. So Jess from New York, and, and this goes back to what we were just talking about, for those of us who got the vaccine due to employer mandates, what do you say to us? I think that's what God asked me about that. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, the thing is, is I, I think that if you've been vaccinated and haven't had any problem, a lot of people have been vaccinated, not everybody's got problems. So I'm not one who's overzealous that, oh no, everybody's, it's a terrible thing and people aren't going to survive. In fact, still, if you were at a high risk, for dying or you're old enough, I'd probably still take the vaccine. Frankly, the risks are pretty small. For a young, healthy person, it's a reverse. You have no risk from COVID and the vaccine actually. So it just depends on who you are. So it depends on your own personal circumstances. But I, I do think that um, there is some things the government could tell us to help us make a decision. So let's say you're 80 years old and you've had two vaccines, but then you've had COVID. What does it mean to have had COVID? It's like another vaccine. In fact, it's probably twice as good as a vaccine. So you've had two vaccines and then you've had a natural vaccine, do you need anything more? Well, I think we'd know is by the data. But Fauci, CDC, and all these people who seem to be in bed with, with Big Pharma and the companies that make these things won't divulge the information to let us to make a wise decision. We finally got them to in one study. And in that study, they found that a vaccine was, or that a natural infection was twice as good as a vaccine. But for three years, they steadfastly would come up to me, all the reporting, say, you don't know that. I said, well, I have immunity. You don't know that. And I said, well, I don't know if it's complete, but I did pretty well with the disease the first time. And I do know that traditionally, if I can get it again, I'll get less of a disease the second time I get it. And to my knowledge, I haven't had it again. I don't know. I've had colds now and again. You don't test five times a day? Yeah. See, the government's want to spend billions of dollars sending these free tests out again. Well, we've created a uh, testing industrial complex now, so there's there's big money to yeah. make us all into... Big government Republicans involved. I'd love that, too, and thinking we're going to cure this. We just need to test every child before they go to school at lunchtime and after after school, and then we need to cancel all classes for anybody that has a positive test, and we're going to... It, it just... It, it's too contagious. It was everywhere, and there was no way you could stop it through that. And in the end... It probably ended, and the vaccine probably had something to do with it. It probably did save some lives, but in the end, it it, it sort of naturally overwhelmed us in Omicron and everything. Why? Like, and you, there's a chapter in the book about about um, Fauci's insistence that we that we vaccinate kids, and to this day, 
pandemic's over. I think everyone agrees with that. But we're still targeting kids who were never at risk to, to getting um, uh, deathly ill. And we're still forcing to mask them. We're forcing to vaccinate them. What's this maniacal thing? It seems it just seems evil to me. It, it plays into the possibility that people are, are driven by pharmacy, you know, driven by the profits of big pharma. We got product to move. Well, I saw just recently the government brought, bought $20 billion worth of uh, pediatric doses because nobody's using them. In far, big pharma, when they came, when Moderna came, they said, well, you know, Bernie was harassing them, Moderna, about raising the prices. Well, we have to raise the price. People are doing this as much. There's going to be less people taking it now. And it's like, we got to raise the price. Um, but the bottom line is, it, this this is, to me, incredibly galling. When the booster came out, this is the third vaccine, it went to the FDA vaccine committee. All vaccine scientists, none of them skeptics of vaccines or mandates. They're, they're all, you don't get on the vaccine committee unless you're pro-vaccine and pro-vaccine mandate. They voted to only recommend it for 65 and older, the third vaccine. So then it goes to the CDC vaccine committee. Once again, all scientists who all are in favor of vaccines and all have no problem with mandates. They voted to recommend it to over 65. And then it went to Rochelle Walensky, a Biden appointee, who said everyone should get it down to six months with no scientific evidence. So typically you would have to prove, remember when it first came out, they said it had 90% efficacy, that it was effective and at first, and not getting in, and then they said it was effective in reducing hospitalization. So you can look at transmission or infectivity, hospitalization, or death. Well, with kids, since no kids die, it's zero. The healthy kids, you, it's hard-pressed to find a healthy child who died from COVID. Kids did die. I won't say there was none. In our country, about 140, maybe 200 out of 30, 330 million. It's sad. But each individual case, or not very many, you can look at each individual case. These were really, really sad cases of children who were dying and then had a positive COVID test as well. They didn't die from COVID. They died with COVID and another terrible disease. But anyway, when they studied this, the committee said, no, no. She says down to six months. And so I asked Fauci, how? I mean, are you reducing transmission? No. Are you reducing hospitalization? We don't know because nobody's hospitalized anymore. Are you reducing death? Well, no kids die anyway. So what are you doing? He said, well, when you give them the injection, the third injection, they will make antibodies. And I said, well, that means exactly nothing. I said, you can give a child 100 mRNA vaccines and they'll make antibodies every time. Doesn't mean they need a vaccine. Just means vaccines are a creation of a foreign protein and your body will react. It means you have an immune system. It doesn't mean that you need these vaccines. And this is what's led to skepticism. People aren't as dumb as you think they are or as the liberals think. People are actually much more. Most people are not vaccinating their kids. And um, I think it's malpractice. Yeah. I really think that uh, uh, and this leads to another problem. You can't sue anybody. So your kid gets a heart inflammation and walks around with a bloated heart that can't pump his blood and has congestive heart failure. Um, what do you do? You can't sue. You can't sue the government. You can't sue the vaccine manufacturers because they're made we have, I'm just going to, we're going to wrap this up with two final questions. And, and one is from a mutual friend of ours, Rob, um, who lives in the free state of Florida, not coincidentally. And it, it gets, it's a follow-up on this question because I'm, I'm now realizing that I used to think that there was, there was rent seeking in the pharmaceutical industry that they would, like all big businesses, they would go to Congress and get a special deal, 
did a special carve out, raise regulatory barriers to entry so that those small startup medical companies couldn't get in. But throughout this last three years, we've discovered that that there's no bright line between government agencies, scientific research, and pharmaceutical companies. They they I don't even know how you would untwine them, but that these perverse financial incentives are probably why we're still trying to vaccinate children. Well, think about this. And I don't want to cast aspersions on this woman because in all likelihood, she's honest scientist and will be good at the NIH. But the new nominee at the NIH has over the last 10 years or so of her career collected $250 million from Pfizer. That didn't go to her personally. It goes to her grants. And she did large studies. And for all I know, maybe they're all great worthwhile studies. But it has at least the appearance of a conflict that she will be involved with things that may be mandating or pushing the whole country as 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 Fauci did. He leapt out of his position and then started telling everybody what to do that have real economic consequences for a company that supplied so much money to her career. And it is a problem. They're intertwined. They're 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 very much intertwined. And we've done stuff at the FDA where we say, well, let's save the taxpayer money, so let's have user fees. So let's have the pharmacy companies, we'll, we'll make them pay, and then the taxpayer will save all this money, so the FDA is funded by pharma. Hmm, I wonder if that could be a problem. If the people actually funding it become in control of what becomes their way of making billions of dollars. And look, this is coming from a guy who's as pro-business as you can get, I'm as pro-wealth. I don't care if your company makes a gazillion dollars, do it honestly. But I'm not a real big fan of companies that use government to place mandates on me and then are all also in cahoots with the people. Yeah, that's not capitalism. That's crony corporatism and, and really just capitalism. Yeah. I wish I wish you could convince Bernie on this because he seems to be. You know, we've tried and I think he should be interested. For example, one small reform would be to look and see whether or not anybody on the vaccine committees is getting royalties from Big Pharma from the companies that make the vaccines. And he's sympathetic to it, but then he rules it out of order. And you have these technical things on which committee can hear things. He said, oh, well, that's in the finance committee's jurisdiction. But if he really wanted to, to, to actually have a real reform, pass it and have them tell him he's, he did it in the wrong committee. People would bring attention to it and we could actually get something passed. So it makes me wonder how much of his is bluster, how much he really cares. In private, he tells me he does. And he's willing to do something and then we never get anywhere. Yeah. I'm willing to, to work with him. I mean, I worked with him on audit the Fed, things like that. You know, he's a rare Democrat who does have a populist impulse that sometimes could be against government corporatism and the cronyism. Um, but I haven't had a great deal of success in tapping into. Yeah. So the the final question, and I'll 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 attribute this to Thomas Massey, even though he didn't ask the question, but he said fairly recently, referring to himself, that the 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 time between being the one a-hole in the room to a hero when it comes to COVID is about two years. And I'm and your book is 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 in a lot of ways structured around your various public uh, confrontations with Fauci because you were in a unique position to actually ask him questions and and force him. He's very hard to get to answer a question, as you may know. Um, when he was finally put under deposition. In the Missouri versus Biden case, I think I think he answered like Bill Clinton. I don't recall like yeah. four hundred times, but yeah, I think we have him dead to right in what he said in the committee to me on gain of function and not funding it. 
And now we have his private emails, and that's what we expose in the book, his private emails. He says, it looks like the virus has been manipulated, and it's very suspicious because we know they're doing gain-of-function research. He directly lied, and nobody's nobody's called him out. I mean, we have, but the mainstream media to this day still absolves him. Yeah. Uh, I think what he said was it depends on what the meaning of gain-of-function is. Sounds a little bit like that. Yeah, a little bit like that. Okay, so everybody needs, needs to get a copy of your book. Um, once we log off here, we are going to sign this huge stack of books. Senator Paul's really excited about being here for the next hour to do that. But uh, thank you for doing this, and and thank you for this book. I, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. You know that I've been obsessed about this for the last three years. We have to get to the bottom of this so that it never, ever happens again. Absolutely. Thanks thank, for doing this. Thank you, thank Senator. You. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.